For June 11, 2015, this is episode 22 of the PHP Roundtable. Today's discussion is focused on PSR7 and how it uses streams, immutability, and middleware. I'm your host, Sammy K. Powers. Today we're discussing the PHP Framework Interop Group's newest accepted member to the standards library, PSR7. We'll discuss what PSR7 is and talk about some of its key features. We'll also look at how you can implement PSR7 in your own project. And I'm being joined at the roundtable today with some of the key players in making PSR7 a reality. So without further ado, let's meet those key players. And in no particular order, let's start off here with Larry Garfield, is the senior architect of Planeteer, I'm saying this wrong, Planeteer.net and a lead developer, uh, core developer, um, for Drupal, and it's and we we tried to discuss how I would say this. It's a leading a leading Drupal core. <laughs> I'll just take over for you here. <laughs> senior, senior architect at Palantir.net <laughs> and a leading Drupal core developer. And Palantir.net has hosted the Chicago um, PHP user group uh, uh, and is a great uh, venue. So um, uh, they're great great people to work with. I'm sure. So um, so welcome. Thanks for joining, Larry. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Also, we have the project lead for Zen Framework and App Agility, Mr. Matthew Wiro Finney. Are we supposed to salute? No, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> that's a uh, Cal Evans thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Cal Evans. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks for joining, that. Matthew. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, we have Bo Simonson. He's the creator of Sculpin and co-host of that podcast, which I'm a fan of. Welcome, Bo. Thanks. It's uh, nice to be here. Yeah, second time around or third time. Actually, you were in like a, one of the you were in the Midwest PHP one, and so yep. you're you're a regular. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and Matthew, you were in another. Actually, all you guys have been on uh, before. So yeah, I was at Sunshine PHP. Yeah. So all recurring peeps. That's awesome. <laughs> well. Um, let's go ahead and kick this thing off. Um, before we get into too many technical details on PSR7, I'm just kind of curious about each of you, how you got involved with even being in part of, part of this process. So, um, Bo, you want to kick it off? Like, how, how did you get involved with PSR7 and what did you do with it? Um, I didn't actually do a lot of it. I've been, I've been tracking it since uh, Benjamin, Benjamin Aberly first introduced the um, uh, Fig HB client proposal. Um, so it's, I've, I've been really interested in it ever since then uh, to see where that would go. Um, it also is something that was pretty close to me because it uh, could really help a lot with uh, one of the projects that I'm working on, which is called Stack, which is a uh, middleware uh, project for Symfony projects or Symfony-based projects. So yeah, I've, I've been super excited to see where it was going to go, uh, even though it started out as a, a uh, mostly a client interface to start with. Uh, I was really excited to see what would happen to it if it decided to go in the direction of also supporting uh, server-side HTTP messages as well. Cool. What about you, Larry? How did you get involved? So I've been interested in the topic ever since it was first proposed, although I wasn't heavily involved uh, for a long time. Um, as Bo mentioned, it actually has mutated an awful lot since the initial, uh, <laughs> the initial version. I'd say I got really involved after Matthew took over as the editor for it uh, because I saw actual momentum and it was going somewhere good. And I'm a big supporter and advocate of cross-project collaboration and interoperability and uh, not reinventing the wheel. And you know, this 
particular problem space is one that is so fundamental that if done right can be seriously awesome for all of PHP and if done wrong it would be a huge terrible thing for all of PHP um, and so I, I wanted to make sure that it was done well so I um, dug in as much as I could uh, in the time I had. Cool. And Matthew what about you how did you get involved? Uh... Well, first I rage quit Fig two years ago, and then uh, <laughs> stopped paying attention. Uh, the, I, that's another story. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, it was funny. It's been kind of on my radar I've known when it was in the background for a while. Um, what got me really started on it was I was um, we we're doing an experimental port of App Agility to Node last summer, and uh, it was amazing. I was able to do like the entire engine, uh, you know, port the engine from PHP to Node in a matter of like a week, and it was largely due to the fact that everything was done on middleware. And the reason middleware worked so well, as it turned out, was because there's a great HTTP abstraction in Node already. Um, and I wanted to port the, the middleware concept that I was working with, which was from Essentia uh, Connect to PHP. And of course, the first hurdle was, oh gosh, I need an HTTP abstraction. And uh, I knew about Stack, and I took a look at Stack, and I noticed that you know what I wanted to do was different one than what Stack was advocating. Um, and so one of the things I thought about, well, was do I use the Symphony ones? Do I use the framework ones? And thought, you know, maybe making it agnostic would make more sense because then we, I might get more people to look at it and be interested. Uh, and so then I remembered PSR7. I'd seen some blog posts from Michael Dowling and a few others. I, I went to look at it. I was like, oh, this is cool. And then there was no implementation. So I took a weekend and wrote an implementation. I went and posted it to the FIG group, only to discover that Michael had just stepped down as editor. <laughs> and, um, and he had been focusing on the client side, which was what Benjamin Eberle had originally um, uh, suggested uh, was uh, for client interfaces. So Michael was coming from it from Bezel. He was very uh, wrapped up in the idea of a, on the client interfaces, but I was looking at it from the, the potential from server side. How do we do this uh, middleware? So. Um, I was totally interested in seeing it push forward. I thought there were some great uh, ideas in there. And so uh, after some really long, hard thinking, I think it took two or three weeks for me to come you know, work up the uh, courage to go in and say, yeah, okay, I'll step in again. Uh, I, I uh, talked to Bo uh, at Madison PHP last year, and uh, he essentially said, sure, uh, go for it. I'll, I'll sponsor. And uh, Paul Jones also stepped up, so I, I became editor at that point. Nice. Well, um, if you're joining and listening and have never heard of the FIG, the PHP FIG, um, you should definitely Google it. And uh, it's it's played a pretty big role in um, how developers um, do things on the web as far as their code. Um, and it's uh, really been great to help this whole PHP ecosystem to kind of um, work a little bit better together, a little, little bit more collaborative. Um, and if you're not familiar with the PSRs, check them out. Um, the latest one that we're talking about today is PSR7. Um, so in a nutshell, um, Larry, what is PHR, or I'm sorry, PSR7? Or as, as um, who is, um, oh shoot. Uh, um, <laughs> I, had a, I had a joke in here, but I didn't write in the show notes. So I, <laughs> when you remember the joke. I'm making a joke later, um, but what is, what is a PSR7 in a nutshell? <laughs> so PSR7 is an abstraction of HTTP messages in PHP. PHP's native um, support for HTTP is actually based on CGI circa 1992 or something ancient like that. Uh, which is not actually the way HTTP works. So 
QSR7 is a series of interfaces for objects that represent an actual H, the actual HTTP specification from the IETF. Uh, technically, version 1.1, uh, but at the level we're talking about, there's really no difference for HTTP2. Uh, the idea being that if you can represent those messages correctly, and you can represent those in a solid, clear way, then doing intelligent things based on the incoming request and the outgoing response, which is like the entirety of what we do in PHP, becomes a lot easier and a lot more uh, interchangeable between different projects or different libraries and, and so forth. So it's you know, representing HTTP messages in the robust, most robust form we can manage. And yeah, there's that decent uh, description. <laughs> yeah, so like HTTP, this idea, this um, these requests and responses and these messages that are being sent back and forth between servers, this is kind of at the core of what we as web developers have to deal with. So it seems like this is a pretty important um, standard to kind of get out there to how we interface with these things that are we do every single day. And it seems like this could have almost been PSR zero, right? Like maybe this should have been the first thing we were looking at for standardizing, but um, of course we had to care about tabs versus spaces first. That's more important. Auto-loading. Auto-loading. Auto-loading is kind of important. It, it was and it, the FIG's uh, first appearance in the world uh, before it was called FIG was the PSR0 auto-loading standard, which was the way it was presented and announced was a textbook example of how not to do things. But the net effect of it over time was extremely positive. Um, it was a, it came out just as PHP 5.3 did, which was just the right time and really ushered in a, um, yeah, that was a major part of the PHP renaissance of the 5.3 and later era. True, true. So PSR7 actually presents, there's, um, there's these interfaces. And if you're, not, if you're not familiar with interfaces, it's uh, basically this contract that you can uh, tack on to a class. And it says that this contract is guaranteed to have these methods on it. Um, if, uh, if I were to look at the PSR7 interface or interfaces, what, what would I find? Is there just one interface that says, oh, this is PSR7? Or how, how does that work exactly? Matthew, you want to take that one? I'll take that one. So uh, at the base level, all HTTP messages have uh, two common features, and those are headers and the message body itself. So we have a message interface that encapsulates those uh, aspects of it. Um, then we have the request interface, and a request has the request line, which includes uh, the method by which the request that is being used, um, the request target, which may or may not be a URI, uh, and then the, uh, the version, uh, the protocol version for HTTP that's being used. Um, for a response, so that's a request interface, it builds on top of the message interface and adds features around that. The response has a uh, status line, and that has your status code and optionally a reason phrase as well as the uh, protocol version. So that's our response interface, adds uh, features around that. Now, in terms of the request, uh, you have a URI. So we have a URI interface as well because one of the things we discovered is uh, there's a lot of pain points, let's say, <laughs> around uh, accessing the various components of a URI. Because a, a URI has a scheme, it has um, optionally some uh, um, uh, user information, it has a host, it might have a, a port if it's a non-standard port, it's got a path, query, fragment, and all that stuff. So we want to make it easy for you to get at those aspects of it. They're actually um, a having... lot more complicated than most people realize. That's right. you know, one of the, I think, 
threads through all of PSR 7 is people think, oh, this thing should be simple, and then you get into it and all the actual nuance that exists in practice. And it's not really that simple. That's, it's not. that's why these robust interfaces need to exist to help standardize the lack of simplicity. Exactly. And one of the pieces, too, is like, you know, yes, PHP offers parse URL, which will give you the components, but even that, there's a little bit of unpredictability about what will be there. And unless you're on a late, late version of PHP, uh, you're, for instance, can't even use a ternary to do the um, the checks because the is set will fail and, and raise an error. So there's some just kind of pain points there. So we have a URI interface on top of this. Now, when it comes to server-side stuff, we're used to in PHP having the super globals, right? So your get, your post, your cookie, your um, server, uh, all these uh, different super globals exist to make it easy to get at that stuff. So we have a server request interface that builds on the request interface and it adds accessors for getting at those collections. Um, on top of that, <laughs> again, there's always another layer. One of the things that came up late in the uh, process was uh, a recognition that underscore files actually has some problems inherent in the, uh, the language and the implementation, uh, particularly when you have arrays of files. And so we wanted to have a normalized structure so that you, when you get one of these items off of there, or if you're using nested items, whatever, you always end up with something usable instead of having to aggregate it from uh, various other pieces. Uh, so we have an uploaded file interface that allows you to get at the various aspects of um, what is normally the underscore files, uh, a single item and underscore files. It also adds behavior. This is like the only interface that has behavior and it has a move to um, a method that allows you to basically emulate move uploaded file and it will, uh, by default, it's supposed to use the SAPI implementation underneath it so that garbage collection happens. Um, and it also has a way to retrieve it as a stream, which is a really nice use case. Now, streams, that's the <laughs> nice part. <laughs> it just it keeps going down the rabbit hole, right? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, that's the, the next piece that I want to talk about. Uh, underlying all of this, we have the message body, and then we have uploaded files, which are usually part of the message body. Uh, Michael Dowling recognized early on that these should be actual streams. And this may seem like, why do you do that? It's just a stream, right? Well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, it could be binary data. It could be JSON. It could be HTML. It could be really tiny, or it could be incredibly large. And when it gets an incredibly large, you want it to be a stream so that you're not consuming a lot of memory and processing power in order to deliver it or accept it. The other thing is that when you're transferring things, like say, for instance, you have an uploaded file that you know you're just going to deliver straight out to S3 anyway, why not just do that as a stream? Mm -hmm. Because then there's very little processing overhead that happens. What I have observed working on Framework 2 is we actually had some incredibly hacky solutions for dealing with streams because like even if you're wanting to return a file from a server side, the, you know, our default responses in all of these different frameworks is doing them as streams. And as a string, you're eating up all this memory. And so we actually had to add in support for streaming a file back. So doing it as a stream makes a lot of sense. If you look at things like Rack and WSGI and uh, Node, they actually already model them as streams. And if you look at PHP, we do as well. It's just that you don't realize it. So you have your PHP um, input stream. You've got your PHP um, output stream, which is the output buffer. We're already doing streams. It's just that we mask them and we've actually abstracted past them to a point where we've 
broken it. So that was one of the things that we uh, did as well. So it's a stream interface that lets you model the message or an uploaded file as a stream uh, so that you can have these nice performance benefits. But it also gives a uniform API for being able to, you know, basically search over it and get, you know, extract segments of it and everything in a very performant and memory uh, saving way. So those are, uh, I think I've covered all of the interfaces at this point. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the most surprising for me was was the URL interface and just how complicated it was for mm -hmm. representing something, uh, universe, universal resource locator or whatever. Um, I, I blame Larry for it. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll take it, honestly. Um, one of the... One of the things I was really pushing on very hard during the development process for PSR7 was strong typing. Yep. PHP is not a strongly typed language. Until it gets a PHP 7, we don't have scalar types. But the principles of strong typing, that is, I call this method, and these are the only types of parameters I can pass in, and this is the only type I'm going to get back. And I don't need to wrap if statements around it to figure out, OK, is this a this thing or is this a that thing? Uh, that's something PHP is not that used to doing. We're used to returning whatever and guessing, but return whatever and guess is a terrible thing when you're trying to build a really robust yeah. platform. So I pushed very hard for, you know, there is only one type, you know, only one data type that can come back from a given method. So, you know, get URI, for example, on the request, um, you know, we could say, okay, you get back a string and you have to parse it yourself, but then there's 17 different ways that could get parsed and then you have to do all that work yourself. Or we could say, we'll parse it for you and give you back an array and these are the conditions to think about in the array, which is what PHP does natively. And that is no better because you still have all these if conditionals lying around. Or we could say, you know what? We're going to pre-parse it for you and wrap it in methods that do the edge case handling for you because why should everyone have to do that themselves? And so we just create a value object that represents a URI, and you can interact with that, and it has a stable API with known types and known behavior, and it's predictable, and you can rely on it. And that just makes your code need a lot less edge case handling and a lot less error checking, which means less for you to forget to do and therefore have bugs. Now you mentioned value objects, and that's quite a um, a different tangent. <laughs> Can I, uh, I actually, before you go into that, I want to yes. uh, build on something Larry said here. Uh, he talks about the benefits of, of strong typing. It actually, by modeling this URI as an object, actually allowed us to simplify aspects of the request interface. One of the big questions towards the end was, what is the relationship between uh, the URI and the host header? And uh, before we were we were doing all these things, we were even having Boolean flags, which Bo was just pushing against. Us. Why do we have this? Um, and thank you, Bo. And yeah, no, it was great, and I'm glad he was pushing against it. But we couldn't figure out a way. But because we had this object, we were able to basically say, hey, we know that there's a host. If there's a host in there, then we update the host uh, header, and we're, we're able to do that. And if there's no host in there, we don't update it. And so it made it possible to simplify this in, in many different ways. Um, so we got to benefit, you know, we benefited from the strict typing right off the bat, even within the uh, PSR itself. There's a, I forget which famous computer scientist uh, who like 40 years ago observed that most of the hard work of programming is and should be in your data structures. If your data structures are well-designed, 
the code around them becomes really easy. If your data structures are poorly designed, the code around becomes really ugly. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're, what we're building here are data structures. Right. And so we wanted to make sure that we put a lot of effort into getting the data structures right, because that makes the code around it a lot easier. Now, you're hitting on like a really important concept that might be new to a lot of people. We've touched on it a little bit in the domain-driven design episode of the PHP Roundtable. I can't remember which number that was, but um, we talked about these this concept of value objects and entities and things like that. Um, we also touched on an idea of immutability and mutability. Um, and the real TRDR, TLDR version of that is that if it's mutable, it means you can modify it. If it's immutable, it's read-only. Um, so if you have an object and you can change a property on it that after it's already been instantiated, then it's mutable. Um, if you can't, then it's immutable. So that concept, that differentiation of immutable and mutable, is actually played a pretty key role in PSR7. Who's, who was the driving force behind that, and like, why did you choose to do uh, focus on immutability for PSR7? <laughs> I think the irony is all of us started off being against immutability. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was, a, there was some uh, discussions on the list about, you know, maybe they should be modeled uh, as immutable. I, I got into a Twitter fight at one point with a bunch of people who were really urging it. And uh, I actually then, you know, like, took, you know, I got really angry and everything. I, like, cut off Twitter for the rest of the day and started thinking about it. Like, why am I angry about this? And I realized she's like, I'm angry about it because it's wrong. It's like, no, is it wrong? Or do I really know all the facts? And what it came down to is I had this idea of immutability in my head that seemed like it was going to be too tough for the average developer. So I thought, okay, so if that, if it's really just a personal thing, why don't I give it a try? And so I gave it a try and I actually was able to like, get rid of like a third of the code <laughs> in my implementation by making these immutable. And uh, it also solved some problems I'd been having trouble with on a middleware library I was working on and uh, made those simpler. And I was like, okay, uh, I can see the benefits here. Uh, what it comes down to is, uh, you know, we, we already were talking about them as value objects. And so the next extension of that is immutability. Um, so when we talk about the value objects, uh, Essentially, what you have is an aggregation of uh, scalar values, typically, but it can also be other value objects. So in the case of request, it's also got the URI as value object. It's one of the values within it. But well, the true uh, touch of the value object is that the identity is based on the aggregate of the properties it, it env uh, encompasses. So if you change even one of those, it's a different value. And this maps actually really, really well to HTTP because if you look at 7230, RFC 7230, it actually talks about if you change any aspect of the message, it is a different message. Mm. And so when we start looking at it that way, it's like, yeah, these have to be immutable. And so what does that mean? It just means that any method that would normally, uh, we had all these set methods before, right? We changed them to with. <laughs> And uh, what it means is that, you know, I want a this value with this. And so it gives me a new instance with that. But they're now two separate instances, one with which is the original message and two, which is the modified message. And that's it. Uh, that's all there is to it. And it seems foreign at first, but uh, all it means is that you have to reassign if you want to keep using that value. So I say request with header and I assign it back to request. I'm good to go. There are great reasons not to do that. So like uh, with middleware, I might want to actually pass in that uh, new value as I invoke the next middleware, but retain the original value so I can do comparisons later, which is a really, really awesome feature. Um, if I look at a client, I might have a base request that has a certain URL. And what I can do is I can 
over the, uh, the uh, looping, I can go through and basically build up my request from that base request without having to go into any weird cloning crap because it's already taken care of because it's a value object. So uh, th those are really fun examples, I think. And in my case, I'm a fan of immutability in general, and I would argue, so I know, Sammy, you've heard me argue this, that there's objects that do things and objects that are things, and the objects that do things are services. Those should always be immutable, period. Don't, don't even talk to me. Um, but for objects that represent data, it becomes trickier if you want them to be actually usable. And part of that is a lot of the immutable objects I've seen in the wild only allow mutation at constructor time, which means you have an object that has 15 constructor parameters, usually undocumented because PHP, and then, you know, or they're constructed with a gigantic array, which is undocumented because PHP. And then, you know, once you're done with it, okay, now I can't do anything with it. I can't modify it. I can't create a new one to replace it without extracting everything out of it and passing it into this whole new gigantic constructor and it's just a mess. And I've seen those type of objects before and I hate them. But, and that was really what, why I was against using immutability for the <coughs> request and response because it seemed like that meant, oh, you had to know everything up front and pass it into a big constructor, at which point, you know, why not just use a function and, and a giant array? When Matthew, you know, back in January, I think it was, yeah. uh, early January, did his, you know, all right, I'll prove you wrong that the mutability doesn't work. Oh, wait, it does. <laughs> um, I followed on with pretty much the same logic of Matthew, you idiot, are you, you know, this is a terrible idea, I'll prove you wrong. And so took a day and basically did a PSR7 implementation of stack PHP, more or less, and found it actually worked really well because it had these chaining modifiers. At the time, they were still called sets, they got renamed to width, but, um, that's really what makes the immutable objects work and be a good developer experience is that ability to say, yes, they're value objects, but I can still easily modify, quote, modify them. And you know, those listening on the podcast don't see me doing scare quotes here. <laughs> but, you know, you can modify them that way, you know, sort of modify them that way and, you know, spawn new versions and it feels natural but you're still looking at, I've got this distinct object here. And that was really nice to work with actually. And then you also get all the benefits of immutability, most of which boil down to predictability. You don't have things changing out from under you at random times, which means you can make a lot more assumptions about your code and therefore eliminate lots of code. A lot of error handling code goes away. A lot of, um, you know, trying to use messages as a way to pass data around as a pseudo global. Um, you know, a lot of that goes away and you just don't have to worry about it anymore. But when you need to spawn new copies that are slightly different, it's dead simple to do. And that I think is really, really powerful. And a, a model that a lot of, I'm hoping a lot of other PHP efforts end up adopting because I think it really has a lot of potential. Um, to just change the way we think about modeling our content through, and our data throughout a system. Yes, I, it's definitely changed my perspective a lot of just trying to think like if if I can make this immutable, is it going to be better? And almost <laughs> like 85% of the time, it's always yes. Yeah. It would be better and easier to work with. And um, one of the add-ons there I'll note, um, one of the concerns that we had was performance because this means you're potentially creating lots and lots of objects and is that going to be a performance problem? 
on either CPU or memory. And it turns out that because PHP is copy on write and is pretty good at that, it's not a big performance hit unless you're doing an awful lot of modification, like chaining hundreds of methods together. So the performance impact for your typical web application Thousands was, is what I found. I mean, it okay. was a ridiculous amount that you needed to do for it to have any impact. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, in terms of either CPU usage or memory usage, the benchmarks say this is really no slower than, you know, what we've used, what we're used to with a mutable object, but you get all these other benefits because the PHP engine actually does a really good job of making you not care. Well, I, I've got a question for you guys. Um, uh, since PSR7 is is just, I, I know it's the set of rules that you have to read to make sure you're implementing correctly, but then once you pull in the interfaces to, into your code, um, you can get a green light that's saying, yes, you've implemented everything good, you're PSR7 compliant, but I think there's there might be a loophole that, um, that might be pretty big for developers when they're implementing PSR7, and that is, um, it surrounds this immutability idea is that if they um, return um, the value this as opposed to creating a new instance um, of that object, um, there's a difference between that being mutable and immutable. So I don't know if I'm describing this enough to where everybody can understand what I'm saying, but um, is there any way that um, through static analysis or through education or whatever that um, implementations of PSR7 could not go awry by making mutable instances of all these objects? So uh, interestingly, uh, really good timing on this. Uh, one of the Zen framework contributors, uh, he goes by the handle uh, max3w. Uh, I know his real name, but he's asked to keep it uh, anonymous. Uh, he has, uh, he's actually working on a PSR7 testbed right now. And the idea is that you would then uh, plug in your implementations and it would test to make sure it's complying with the interfaces. Uh, and so that I'm hoping that we can actually, you know, once it gets completed with that, that we can add that to the PHP fig uh, organization. And, you know, you'd be able to say it is compliant because it passes the tests. And uh, that would be for me the best way of doing this. And uh, there has been a, uh, quite a few people have called on that. And uh, that's why I tested all the different assumptions and behaviors uh, in Directoros as I was developing it, is I wanted to make sure of that. The funny part is Max has found some places where you know I didn't get up to date with the very latest bits and pieces. So a few places where uh, I was returning null where I should have returned empty strings, stuff like that. So he's correcting those as he goes, which is really awesome. Um, but that would be the best way is if we have a test suite so it's, is it a sweet sweet? Yes, it's a sweet sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I, I'll ask Bo. Bo, you've been pretty quiet. Uh, what what kind of uh, projects would uh, benefit from PSR7? If I had an open source project, what's the perfect candidate to implement PSR7? Um, well, obvious cases would be if you want to build some sort of middleware. Uh, so if you have a project, uh, so maybe you have like a security project that uh, operates at the HTTP layer, that would be a great candidate for building something off PSR7. Uh, pretty much any other project that you can basically extract all of your code out that has to do with the framework and just build uh, uh, framework agnostic middleware, uh, not middleware, but framework agnostic controllers, you'd be able to leverage PSR7. So for example, if you have a, a tiny application, maybe a little blog application that only needs to read the request, do some simple things with the response. Um, you could write that and drop it into Laravel, or you could drop it into uh, Zend, or drop it into, uh, how do you pronounce the, the new package name, Matthew? Deactoros. Deactoros? Yeah. yeah. You could, it's great. Uh, 
Right. <laughs> get a pass it into um, you know homegrown framework built around that. Um, so basically, if you have anything that you can isolate and pull out all of the framework bits, you'd be able to leverage PSR seven and make it so that you're free to run that application pretty much anywhere, anywhere that supports PSR seven. I'll give you another example. Um, a couple of months ago, I was working on a project in Symfony where, among other things, we had a proxy layer. So we had a, a front end in, in JavaScript that was talking to a Symfony app, which was forwarding the requests onto another Symfony app after doing some logic. And that forwarding meant us taking code in from Symfony's request object, dissecting it, turning it into a guzzle request, signing, you know, doing some request signing on that uh, using Guzzle, Guzzle's interface, sending that message, getting the response back, verifying the signature, dissecting it, converting it back to a Symfony object uh, or Symfony response object and sending that back. And then we have to do the same kind of signing logic on the, the further back end piece. Um, and just there's too much code going on there. If everything is using PSR7 in there, then I take a request, I slap a new header on it, and I pass it to the next object, or pass the, the altered version to the next object. And when the response comes back, I just return that response directly, and everything still magically works. It's just a lot of code that goes away because I don't have to think about two different ways of representing this request when all I'm doing is passing it from one system to another. So you're alluding to something that Bo mentioned, and that is middleware, right? So if, if, if somebody had never used middleware before, um, how would you describe that to them? There's a couple it's, of different... Uh, it's code that lives between uh, a request and a response. So it gets a request coming in and it returns a response is the idea. Uh, that, that's the most simplest form. I've seen three or four different major patterns of it. Uh, it can be a function accepting a request that returns a response. It can be a function accepting a request and a response that returns a response. Uh, and uh, the other pattern is a request, um, a function returning, uh, expecting a request response, and then a callable that is essentially the next middleware or will invoke the next middleware. Uh, and that's the, the third pattern. So the first one is um, kind of what I would call the, the lambda pattern. Uh, I just did the square scare quotes there. Which is um, what Symfony and Stack and Silex yeah, use. It's what, uh, yeah, exactly. Symfony, Stack, and Silex use the, uh, and uh, uh, now Laravel and uh, Lumen use the, the Lambda model. The um, request response model is uh, what uh, WSGI does and also what um, uh, the Zen Framework 2's dispatchable interface. Uh, I've seen a few uh, other uh, implementations. Um, and then the third one, uh, oh, actually, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Slim versions one and two also use the, the second one I did with the request and the response. And then uh, the third one is the one that uh, Connect made popular in um, uh, Node and uh, ExpressJS by extension. Uh, and that's the one that uh, Slim 3 is using, um, uh, Strategility, which is uh, the middleware project that I did that uh, ported Connect and uh, now uh, relay, I think, is the new word, uh, is the new term for Paul's new one. Uh, it was pipeline, and now I think it's relay, uh, is also using that pattern. And uh, just to be fair, uh, Larry uh, noted in the uh, show notes that uh, lambda pattern is uh, a term that he coined uh, during some discussions. <laughs> so, it's good fair. to get names of these things. Exactly. Um, I, call them, I, I call them lambda. Um, I, I can't remember what I call the second one, but the third one I call the workflow or pipeline. Uh, uh, 
style. So, Well, Michael Dowling re uh, recently tweeted, why are there several PHP middleware libraries that require a response in the method signature? I thought it's supposed to return a response. So he's referring to, he thought it should be the Lambda sort of um, structure and, and he's kind of questioning this different type of way of implementation. Uh, what are there different, are there like specific reasons why you would do one, one sort of um, method signature versus another one? Sure. Um, the, so the first two I uh, specified, you have to have some way of injecting uh, other middleware in there if you want to be able to call it. And so if you look at stack has, um, uh, it's not, there's not, it's not part of the interface, but it's one of the um, uh, conventions. conventions around it is that you pass in, uh, you know, the app or other middleware as, uh, you know, to the constructor or, you know, through a setter, but then it's a standard property on there and you call it. Um, passing the callable or the stack to the, the function means that the, it doesn't have to be aware at all of how to do it, which means that you can actually use closures very easily without wrapping them or anything. Uh, so you can have uh, a hybrid style of uh, middleware where you have both um, you know, classes and you have uh, callables and everything in there. The reason that some of them have the response is that you can then type in only on PSR7 and the, the uh, uh, actual middlewares don't have to import any implementation of PSR7. They just have to know about the interfaces, which is awesome. So That's what that means is that you don't... Yeah, so, well, except for if you are, um, if you don't accept, uh, accept the response in there, what it means is that you have to have a dependency on a concrete version so that you can create and return the response is the oh, idea. Uh, and so it's, it's not that, that one is better than or worse than the other. It's just that, um, you know, it, you have to think about what are the trade-offs between these different things. I have a longer method signature uh, when I'm doing the workflow style, but I don't have to know anything about any concretions at that point. The other style might be uh, a better one for, uh, you know, you have to know the concretions, but it is a very simple, direct Lambda style. I, I, I love it, actually. Uh, I like all of the styles, but I would use them in different uh, circumstances. Uh -huh. Gotcha. I have one quick question before we kind of move it on to um, a little bit more uh, ideas specifically for a package I've been working on. But uh, I saw that there was an attributes um, I guess, I don't know if it's an interface, but something, some, there were some references to attributes in PSR7. And what's the difference between attributes and key value pairs from a param and a URL? So attributes are a very amusing part of the spec, I think, because <laughs> we debated them at length. And um, during the course of that discussion, uh, we saw some of the Symphony folks drifting towards recommending the way Zen does things and the Zen folks drift, drifting towards the way Symphony does things. <laughs> so Interesting. The, the attributes are part of the server request interface specifically. So they're not part of the raw message. They're part of the um, special case of a message that is the, uh, coming in, yeah, the server side coming into a PHP process, which has a couple of extra bits and pieces on it, like Matthew mentioned. And one of them is the attributes. If you've used the attributes bag in Symphony HTTP Foundation, it's that. That's pretty much what it is. The idea being that it's a place for you to put a small amount of derived information, things like negotiating um, what the format of the request is, or uh, extracting parameters out of the request based on routing. You can store those in the attributes. So it's kind of a it is just a key value pair of application specific data and 
applications have to agree with each other on what those keys are going to mean. Um, mm. But I mean, really, and anyone who's worked with uh, Symfony or Silex or anything else using HTTP Foundation, uh, which includes Drupal now, um, it's pretty much the exact same idea as the Symfony attributes. It's just not in a nested object. So it's metadata, basically, about the message? Yeah, and usually it's data that's derived from the request itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'll be, you know, like uh, Larry said, it might be stuff that's derived from the process of routing, which is going to maybe look at the URL that might look at the request method. It might even look at some of the server environment stuff, uh, which uh, we have server params for. So usually it's derived, um, but it's basically saying, okay, I derived this stuff, I matched these aspects, and so I'm going to put these attributes in there which give it a simple, simpler way of determining, you know, what was actually matched uh, so that I can just start operating on it instead of having to match again myself. So you can attach other things like, uh, like say, a security token, for example, yes. if, a, if a middleware determines that this request uh, was made by a specific user, you can put like user ID equals and then an ID on the attribute or, you know, if it's a token or something else like that. Basically, it's some way for um, a middleware or some other part of the system to look at the request, determine something about it, and then make it more accessible to um, something downstream listening for those requests. Yeah, it, it allows middlewares to communicate with each other mm -hmm. on the yep. uh, on the request side, server request side. Oh, okay, cool. So, uh, it, like, I had one middleware that was looking at it uh, before another middleware. So let's say at middleware A um, was I'm going to be executed before middleware B. And middleware B knew that A was going to do something. So it's going to, once it receives a response or request, it's going to be looking at maybe some of these attributes and be like, okay, what did A do? Oh, A did this. So I'm going to change my response based on what A did. So is that right? Right. Yeah. But it doesn't need to be thinking in terms of what did A do. It needs to be thinking in terms of by the time this middleware is called, I'm going to assume that there is an attribute called controller that's been defined. And then I'm going to invoke that. Okay. Whether that was another middleware that created that, whether that was a routing process, whatever that is, is kind of irrelevant. It's just, you know, informal contract that PSR7 doesn't define that the property called underscore controller or underscore action, if you're in Aura or you know, whatever it's going to be, um, has this special meaning. And as long as it, that's been defined by the time you get there, cool. Which also means it becomes really easy to test those middlewares independent of each other because you just set up your request and pass it in and you're good to go. Cool. I'd like to talk a little bit about implementing PSR7 on an actual project. And for the project that I want to use as an example would be the Facebook PHP SDK because I feel like it'd be an excellent candidate for PSR7. And it's the one that I'm most familiar with, so I'm going to ask a lot of questions for it. But um, what would be um, maybe the first step of implementing PSR7 for the SDK um, as uh, looking at the feature set of the SDK, the primary um, functionality that it provides is basically an authenticated client that interfaces with the graph API at Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, so it goes through the whole like OAuth 2.0 process to get an access token and then all of a sudden you can send requests on behalf of a user. Um, where where would PSR7 play a role in, implement, um, in, in that package? I would actually ask why you're not using Guzzle. <laughs> <laughs> because Guzzle 6 now is built on PSR7 and so huh. you know, its request response messages are all PSR7 while you're doing really is providing a wrapper around HTTP to provide Facebook-specific uh, commands and, and API calls, I just stick Guzzle inside your code, um, and it actually has tools for you know, extending it to provide that kind of authentication and so on. Uh, and then you don't have to worry about PSR7 per se. You worry about Guzzle and go to town. 
That's a really great advice. Would love to get that implemented. We've been advocating that one actually for the past year or so. It's really hard to get the, the Facebook guys on board with um, uh, adding dependencies. Right. So um, even though you can install the PHP SDK with Guzzle, it, or I'm sorry, with Composer, um, they, they don't want to have any um, dependencies because a lot of the people using the PHP SDK for Facebook uh, don't use um, Composer. So we've got an autoloader in there. So, I mean, I guess we could like add Guzzle. Um, just add it to the code base and stuff, but uh, I don't know. It's just it's a little tricky. We're trying to figure that out, and they will eventually get them to adopt composer dependencies. Tell them that Amazon's already doing it, and they're behind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they also have the Guzzle developer lead on uh, on their team, so it's, also true. They've got yes. an unfair advantage. <laughs> true that. <laughs> well, let's, let's let's throw this back at you then. What? What do you think you would gain by having the Facebook SDK use PSR7? I would hope that right now with the, um, what they're called, there's Facebook requests and Facebook response, and they have their own implementation of something that looks very similar to PSR7. Uh, but it would be nice to be able to just take directly from the SDK a Facebook response, inject it into a PSR7 compliant middleware stack or whatever you want to call it, and just start playing, you know, without any sort of boilerplate code or anything like that. Just have it automatically start working with uh, other packages nicely. So I'd actually say, you say other package there. That's the key phrase. If part of your, your goal is to have no dependencies on other packages, then PSR7 is, PSR7 is probably not going to help you that much. Where it would help you is if you want to say, you know what, I need to talk to Facebook using OAuth. There's this OAuth library out here already that takes care of the ugliness that is OAuth. And, oh, it wants a PSR7 object. So if I can give it a PSR7 request that I'm about to send and say, here, do your magic signing on this, and, and then you know, it gives you back a new request that has been signed, that's where PSR7 is helpful because then you can say, you know, I don't need to write a bridge from Facebook re request to signer request and then back again. You just use PSR7 objects all the way through and all that conversion code disappears. Right. That That's really where the benefit is, is that you, know, you can get rid of, rid of a lot of mute code from to translate from this representation to this representation so that you can put into this library and bring it back out and translate it back. That just goes away. But if you're not using any other libraries, then that you're not really going to benefit from that necessarily. Right. Well, ideally, we would be able to just remove all of the HTTP client stuff that we wrote um, <laughs> and just have use Guzzle, and that would just take out probably half of the code. Uh -huh. um, but uh, I did want to ask about specifically streams because I know bodies are treated as streams in um, uh, PSR7, and there's actually a stream, I guess, a streamer streaming interface, or I don't know what this, the actual car stream interface. Stream interface, yeah, um, where you can um, read sections of code. Um, I, I, I'm assuming is there like a cursor in there where you can like yes. get the next chunk kind of thing? Yeah, you can uh, call read. Uh, there's an EOF. There's seek. Uh, you know, all those things that you'd expect out of a stream are right there. Cool. So Facebook recently. Um, added a feature in graph 2.3, so it's really new, um, where you could upload videos in chunks. Uh -huh. um, and it requires, a um, uh, at, at minimum, three uh, requests to the graph API. The first one initiates the request with the size of the file. Then um, you have a series of requests that actually sends chunks to the file. And then the last one would, um, after all the chunks have been set, uh, sent, you send like all the metadata associated with that um, to finalize the uploading of that video. Um, I guess my question is, um, could could the Facebook PHP SDK adopt the stream interface for PSR7 to implement that specific feature? 
Yes, and that's actually uh, Michael Dowling. Uh, he was the editor uh, prior to me on PSR7. Uh, he's the one who proposed the stream interface, and he writes Guzzle. And that's one of the big use cases that you know a lot of APIs have is having to be able to work with uh, chunked responses or chunked requests. And that's why part of the reason that he really wanted to have the stream implementation in there is that it simplifies that aspect of it. Um, so you can you know, send off these chunks, and essentially your client can be taking care of doing the, the right thing in terms of uh, sending the data in the right sequence. But programmatically, I'm just saying send it, right? Uh, and then the, the SDK or the client library can do that. So absolutely. Uh, and I would, uh, you know, again, that's an argument for using Guzzle. But if nothing else, you can take a look at it and see how Guzzle has implemented that. Right. Well, so are you, um, I'm sorry, uh, Bo, I'm going to, there you go. Cool. Gotcha. <laughs> you're, you're on it. You got unmuted. Um, so Matthew, um, on the streaming thing, uh, right now in, in Facebook, when I send a chunk, it actually, I, I don't determine how much of a chunk I send. Facebook mm -hmm. will respond with, okay, now send me this many bytes. Do I use the stream interface for the, both the response and the request? So I create like a response, uh, a stream object that um, tells me how much to chunk off and then send a, uh, a stream object that actually sends the chunk or um, is that is that like a typical setup? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I know that I know how this stuff operates in theory. I don't do a whole lot with the client side stuff uh, where I'm sending stuff client side. So I haven't played with this aspect of it. But when I was looking at uh, the proposed, uh, there's a Guzzle Streams um, that uh, project that uh, Michael worked on that was showing how you might do these. Uh, essentially, the idea was that the client was, uh, he had this, you know, the the chunked re uh, request and the chunked response, and the idea was that it would send off the uh, request to be told, you know, what uh, what are the chunk sizes that I can send, and it would just keep firing off requests and going, you know, iterating through the stream and sending a, up to that amount of chunk until it finished all the different requests that were necessary in order to send the file. True that. Whereas for you as a developer, all you're doing is saying, here's a request, and here's the name of a file on disk, because that is a stream in PHP, and mm -hmm. the rest of it is just taken care of off over there, and you're done. Which is what your, the Facebook SDK would do at that point. So the Facebook SDK would be doing that, you know, that figuring out how to send, chunk it and everything, uh, but it would propose a, a simpler interface for the uh, end user who would just take a look at it and say, okay, send, and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's actually the discussion that's going on right now is um, how much of that do we abstract from the user? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sort of on the side of kind of giving the user a little bit more flexibility of how it's chunked and like taking control of like if a chunk fails, then you get a retry and then how many tries do you get to mm -hmm. um, before you fail and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and it also kind of educates the uh, developer about how the API works. Um, whereas if I were to just kind of give them um, a... Uh, a simple method that says send this file and it does all that stuff for them. They have no idea how this is actually being done. So I, I feel like there's like there's this whole simple versus um, what is it simple versus easy Ryan Weaver's thing that he talks about about like how how easy do we make something or how simple do we make something and the, the but there's also another aspect here and that's the developer experience right and right. does the developer really want to or need to know about the the underlying details of how the HTTP works or do they just need to know how to call the method right and that's a that's a question um you know if they want to really they could always dig into the source code and find out how that's implemented that's true. Um, but in terms of the developer experience is it easier to 
I expose a, you know, a send method or is it easier or is it better to say, okay, well, you're sending a chunked response with this one. So you might want to do this so that you can test it. I mean, that gets complex and it's easily overwhelming as well. So that right. there's two different sides of the coin. It's nice to have the flexibility, but it's also really, really nice for the end user to just be able to have that one thing that they interact with. Which is where my, my usual guideline is robust primitives. So, you know, for any given level you're working at, you want to have a really robust set of well-encapsulated primitive operations and primitive values that you're dealing with, and use that to build the next layer of really robust primitives and really robust uh, operations that could be dissected if necessary without going all the way down the rabbit hole. So for example, um, you don't have to think about array structures when you're dealing with uh, PSR7. You're dealing with these object interfaces. You don't care what the implementation is. You don't care about, um, you know, there's some cases in which P HTTP is case insensitive and some where it's case sensitive and most of that's taken care of for you. So there's the, your primitive is the message definition. On top of that, you build a primitive that is sending that message uh, over, you know, serializing that to HTTP and sending it in the appropriate fashion to a stream. On top of that, you build um, breaking a, taking a message and chunking it into pieces to send multiple times. On top of that, you build your business logic around, I want to send this file. And then, you know, each layer takes care of its primitives, but you can jump down one layer at a time if you need to, but you don't have to, provided each of those layers is done well. That is hard to do well. Um, really thinking in terms of layered primitives rather than I just want to do this thing, I'm going, so I'm going to put some code into a function and it's going to do it and now I leave, is hard. But that is what builds robust systems. That's what builds systems that uh, don't need to get rewritten every two years. That's what builds systems that can interoperate with each other because you can share those primitives. And that's a lot of what FIG in many ways tries to do is you know, those primitives that make sense to be common, things like HTTP messaging, things like logging, let's abstract those, let's build those primitives so that we can then build the next layer of primitives on top of those, which could vary between projects and that's okay. But right. that, you know, we're dealing with a better vocabulary than strings, ints, and superglobals. And this is something I definitely want to tackle in a, in a future episode, um, some, some of these very topics. Um, so this is a, a really big one that we'd <laughs> love to get more detail on, but I want to shift gears a little bit and uh, just look at um, some of the criticisms behind PSR 7 and one that was happening kind of more recently. Um, there's a few tweets sent out by Taylor Otwell, uh, the guy who created Laravel, um, and the tweets, uh, I've got three of them here that I'll just read them in order here. He said, the fact that some PSR7 implementations actually prevent you from simply doing new response hello world will forever boggle my, my mind. I think it is a very strong sentiment that the fact that very small people can do really silly things when designing software. Takeaway lesson, always build for developer experience. It's sort of kind of what we were just talking about. Um, I, I think it was small. smart people, not small people. <laughs> oh, did I say small? Oh my gosh. Thank you. Very smart people. There's actually been some interesting discussion around this one. Um, you know, I saw this one and uh, my immediate response was, well, then create, you know, extend or uh, create a factory for the response uh, in order to do this. 
Um, Larry and I actually had a lot of discussions, and uh, the funny part is he's actually targeting specifically Zendiac Taurus, which I was developing all along uh, in, with the uh, specification that was originally Fly HTTP, uh, now it's uh, Zendiac Taurus. Um, so I was de developing this along with the specification for PSR7 so that we would have an implementation that we could play around with, which was great because it facilitated Larry with uh, playing with the, the stack clone and everything so that we could play uh, and see what worked and what didn't. Um, Larry and I talked a lot about the constructors, and the fact is, is that the request and the response are generic. They're not just server, they're client side as well. And for a client side, for you, the response, you're going to be parsing the message, and you want to be able to put in, here's the status code, here's the headers, here's the uh, content, right? And you want to put that in uh, very quickly. So Larry and I had quite a few discussions about what should be in the constructor, what order and everything that would make sense for, for a general purpose use case. Now. No, that doesn't work great with Hello World. But I wasn't thinking developer experience at this point. I was thinking, what is a general use case for those more specific use cases, for instance, on the server side where you might just have a string, which might be HTML, might be JSON, whatever, then there are some ways that we can make this simpler. So right after this went out, uh, somebody actually went and created a pull request against it, the Actaros, and essentially they wanted to add a static from string method. And I'm like, hell no. And I, I didn't mean to be rude, but I'm like, the, the whole point was like, this this will not work. It's like, you know, from string, what does that mean? Um, you know, is it the HTTP message string? If so, we need to parse it. And I actually already have another class that does exactly that. Um, but if we're talking about something, you know, a string response, then maybe we need to have an extension or a factory for doing this. And so they started talking, well, sometimes I want to do HTML, sometimes JSON. So I then proposed, okay, how about a factory class that we call the Actoros response string response that has factory methods that will then return a, just a response and it would create the uh, the stream from there. And so if we said from JSON, we could give it some data. And if the data isn't a string, it goes and serializes it via JSON then code, that sort of thing. And it's been fun because I've been working with this guy and he started off and he was all upset because I wasn't just going to merge his thing and tweeted at uh, Taylor and Taylor's like, oh, that's obtuse. And <laughs> I said, listen, I'm not saying I'm not going to accept it, but I'm saying we need to change the approach. I work with this developer and now he's actually like, oh my gosh, I really like how that where this is going. And so he's very excited about this. And now he's seeing why it's implemented the way it is, but also how he can work within that framework in order to build something that is also developer friendly. We have these nice low level objects, but it doesn't mean that you can't build a nice developer experience on top of it. And that's the cool part. And I think that goes to the point we talked about earlier. Um, well, both points we talked about earlier. One is the, the layered primitives, but also what you're talking about at the start of the podcast that a lot of these things seem really easy at first and seem really simple until you dig into them and realize, oh, there's a lot more complexity here that we need to account for. And then, okay, now what do we build on top of that? So for example, um, when I was working on the stack clone back in January, uh, I also wanted to return just a string for the response because that's as much as I was dealing with. So I had a class that implemented the, string, the stream interface, actually extended from one of uh, Matthew's classes and had a string property inside it. And it meant I, instead of doing new response string, I did new response, new string, and then you know, a class name string, and then uh, it, its constructor was a string. And it worked just fine and everything was you know, worked. So, you know, would it make sense to have a response implementation that just internalizes that logic into its constructor? 
yeah, maybe go and write one. It'd be really easy and it would still work with everything else precisely because of the common interface. Mm -hmm. So as long as it's still a stream internally, when, you know, once it gets past that constructor, it's still going to work with every other middleware out there. You know, okay, so you had a, a junior implementation. That's fine. The fact that we can support that and support something that's going to stream a two gigabyte file and something that's going to stream, you know, a database query that's running and generating code, you know, at runtime uh, to generate the output on the fly. All of those are supported and that's great. And that's the, that's the hallmark of a good interface is that, you know, you can hide that kind of detail and then simplify in cases where you need to, or make it easy or paper over things or make assumptions and in other cases don't, and it still all works together. So, I mean, if Taylor wants to write that kind of interface or that kind of uh, implementation, I'm sure it'll take him, what, an hour, two hours? He's a good- Not either. Yeah. <laughs> Just to extend from Diactoros and uh, change the constructor and he's good to go, so yeah. Exactly. So, and, and that's what I think is uh, really cool about how all this stuff works is that, you know, we have this really nice solid interfaces at the lower level. We have some very nice general um, implementations and now you can start building that developer experience that might be specific to your library mm -hmm. on top of that and yet it will still all interoperate. I, I think the problem there though, as far as developer experience goes is that, for example, in Taylor's case, if he were to build some sort of uh, factory class or whatever to build these sorts of things correctly, it's gonna tie him to a Diactoros, for example, right. will tie him to one of the implementations. So the fact and that, that was the argument I was talking about earlier too with the middleware was that um, you know if you don't pass that response into the middleware, you are tied to a concretion, even if it's just a factory. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's one of the pieces that uh, you know why you one of the pros and cons you want to look at is what do I want to tie my framework to or my project to? Mm -hmm. Yep. You look like you have more to say, Boba. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, this whole conversation has been making me think about the fake cookies package, and mm -hmm. as as an example of uh, a project that is taking in uh, PSR uh, seven primitives and working with them quite effectively without having its own implementation. Like it, it doesn't care who who it's working with. Uh, I, I don't know if it. Have you actually worked with it yet, Matthew? Like I've played with it with. a little bit here and there on my site just to see how it would, you know, how things would work out, but nothing does offensive. It, does it work as advertised yeah. <laughs> so far? So far. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, within, within, you know, within the PSR7, you know, uh, interface, it seems to be working. I have a test suite where I've, I've implemented just a tiny bit of PSR7 request and response, and it seems to work okay. But, you know, that, that's a case where, um, similar to what, what Larry was talking about, you know, there's the PSR7 primitives, and then I have the cookies and set cookies primitives, and then I have a, a, a facade in front of all of that to make it easier. Uh, focus on the DX, and it's been one step closer every time. Uh, someone just uh, submitted a, a pull request with an example of a forever cookie. So basically a, a forever constructor on it, and it all works. Like it's all going to work just fine because it's built on this these layers of uh, uh, primitives that go uh, they get more primitive as you go further down the stack. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's going to work out quite well for everybody. It's just going to take a while to get used to it, I think. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a valid point. Anytime you are um, you know, typing new, you're binding yourself to a concretion. Mm -hmm. So, and it, that concretion includes the constructor, which is not part of the interface because PHP current versions don't let you, I think. Maybe it's the other way around. But um, so 
you're going to be bound to a concretion if you do if you're using the constructor. So you're bound to whatever that particular implementation's constructor looks like. Mm -hmm. Pick one. So you know, pick pick the concretion you like. As long as it's following the interface, everything else still works with it, and you're good. Yeah. Larry, you and I need more concretions because we're in Chicago and there's lots of potholes. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, was that the joke from earlier? <laughs> <laughs> we just have, you know, after, you know, it snows a lot, so there's lots of snow plows and we get lots of potholes, so we need more concrete on the roads, you know. Um, the city's broke, so we still haven't fixed them, even though it's June. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I want to kind of wrap it up here because we're kind of going over an hour, but uh, real quick, how do you guys foresee PSR7 impacting the zeitgeist of the PHP community and the culture and the PHP ecosystem or ecosystem in the coming years? I'll jump in. Um, yeah, my hope along this is that we'll get better interoperability. Um, like I said, when I first came into this, I was looking at Node and one of the things that was amazing about Node was that you'd have all these different frameworks. They would all be defining different middleware and everything, but uh, they all were using the same abstractions. And as a result, that was why it was so easy for us to build something so quickly was that uh, we could just pull any random package and we didn't have to worry about whether or not those request and responses worked for that particular one. They all used the same one. And that made things terribly easy for me as a developer. And I didn't have to think about that. I learned one API, I'm really good to go, which is fantastic. And I wanna see that in the PHP ecosystem because this is really where the frameworks have been setting up their fiefdoms is really around how they handle HTTP. And it's stupid because as a result, you cannot reuse code from one to the next. And so one person might build a content negotiation system in Symfony. I can't use it easily in Zen Framework without building a bridge and you can't use it in slim PHP at all. And that sucks. I don't want that situation at all for PHP developers. I want us to solve, you know, have one or two packages that solve it well. I can look at those and I don't have to think about which one's compatible, I just use it. And that's really, really what I want to see happening in the PHP ecosystem. And that's what I want to enable with this. Amen, Reverend. <laughs> <laughs> and on that amen, we should probably start wrapping this thing I up. Do somehow. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so in addition to everything Matthew just said, which I completely agree with, I think there's a potential for uh, the fact that PSR7 is immutable to start encouraging others to take that approach to immutability. And I think that would be a very, very good thing. Absolutely. Because one, you know, once you have the setup properly and the pattern to make the, the DX and the developer experience of an immutable object uh, good, like PSR7 does, then you get that you get a lot of other benefits and a lot of other assumptions you can make, and that just can spider out through your code, and that encourages more loose coupling, that encourages stronger typing, that encourages, um, you know, just not having to deal with certain problems. I'm a big fan of the idea of something being a solved problem, and you just move on from it um, rather than constantly revisiting it. So. Like we've been talking uh, about some future fig work around uh, link handling, for example, and that's something that someone might want to attach to a you know, this is like um, link headers, essentially that, that type of link. Um, that's something you might want to put onto a particular uh, response, for example. Great, that means it also needs to be immutable, which means that's 
you know, those objects are going to need to be mutable as well, which means, which means, which means, and I think there's a potential for a really nice knock-on effect there, especially as we move into PHP 7 later this year, which has much better typing support. Um, I think those two things together are going to be the foundation of the next big wave of PHP. We're kind of, the, the 5.3 slash 6 era is going to be winding down, and I think PSR 7 and PHP 7 is going to be, are going to be the, the foundations of the next uh, piece of PHP's evolution, the next, uh, the next era for us. Can you believe that PHP 5.4 end of life is going to be in less than three months? <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> PHP is moving a little faster than it used to. It's kind of exciting at the same time. Like maybe we'll, we'll get faster upgrades as we move on. Um, all right, let's move this thing on to the developer shout out as we sum it up here. And this is a, one of my favorite uh, things about the PHP roundtables because you know PHP roundtable focuses on community and how awesome everybody is, and everybody is just like doing all this great stuff. And sometimes they don't get necessarily the recognition that uh, they deserve. Um, so this segment recognizes those people and gives them a little gift. And today's gift is sponsored by Laracasts.com, and they are providing a $50 Amazon gift card to recognize the developer for this episode. And if you don't know, Laracast is the Netflix for developers. And if you're listening to PHP roundtable, because you're trying to learn more about PHP, then you're just going to love Laracast because Jeffrey Way is the guy who runs it and he's got all these screencasts. I think he's got 500. He just tweeted, um, the, I think today, that 500 screencasts he's got up there. Um, and it shows you step-by-step -step how to do really cool things with PHP. And I'm a personal subscriber and I've learned tons from uh, Jeffrey. So definitely check that out. So for this episode, the panel nominated somebody who actually... Um, had some contributions in a very unique way to PSR 7, and that's Everett Pott. Um, Matthew, why, why did you guys choose Everett Pott to recognize for the developer shout-out? So uh, Everett uh, has been involved with PSR 7 for a very long time and uh, contributed a whole bunch to it. But what was very interesting was just before our first review period, he actually wrote a blog post saying what he thought was wrong with it. And uh, it's basically he's saying, you know, I'm not going to vote for it. Here's what I think is wrong with it and kind of urging others to do it. In the end, uh, even after the second review period, <laughs> he was still the only person to dissent. But what was phenomenal about this whole thing was that even after he voiced those concerns, he continued to collaborate with us and work on improving the library. And that sort of collaboration, even in the face of saying, you know, I don't agree with the direction, you don't see a lot of it's mostly I hate this and therefore it's wrong and I you know that doesn't help anybody but it's like I don't like this but I see where it's going and here's something that I think could be better than what you're currently doing take a look and actively helping shape it for the better regardless of his personal feelings for it and that to me is uh, just a phenomenal uh, spirit of collaboration and that's that's why I wanted to nominate him. That's one of the coolest things about open source is that you can even have like these conflicts or or negative feelings or anything, but they they a lot of times can turn into something um, really good if everybody is kind of open minded about what's um, what people are actually saying and trying to listen to um, their criticisms. So this is it's it's all about love. <laughs> so uh, 
Uh, Everett, I will be trying to get in contact with you to get your address and send this $50 Amazon gift card to you and a personal thank you card and some PHP Roundtable, a PHP Roundtable sticker that's really big. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to hand out these stickers to people at uh, tech, and uh, I had a lot of people were like, I'm not putting that on my computer. It's like half <laughs> the size of my computer. It's like, <laughs> I, 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 but I tell them to use it as a base. So you put it on the base of the computer, and then you can put other stickers on top of it. So it's like a <laughs> sticker holder. <laughs> I won't, the next set of stickers will be smaller than this. Uh, you live and you learn. Yeah. All right. So, actually, before we continue, yeah. I, I'd like to also, I know it, technically it's uh, um, against the rules since he's here, but I also want to give a shout out to Matthew. Uh, because, you know, I've been in FIG for several years now. It can be kind of contentious. It can be a rough and tumble place. <laughs> Matthew's <laughs> dying of laughter right now. <laughs> um, but Matthew as editor was just amazingly calm and collected and diplomatic, uh, way past where I would be. You certainly <laughs> didn't point on the emails to uh, Bo and uh, Paul that I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I just want to say thank you to Matthew. Um, without that, th this wouldn't have happened. Uh, that this is really your leadership that made it work. And thank you for that. Thank you. Yay. Everybody's clapping at home. I can hear them. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up with some shameless plugs. Um, we'll go around. Larry, do you have anything that you want to plug? Um, Drupal 8 coming out this fall. Uh, just going to rock your socks as a CMS. Um, I'm speaking at every conference I can find this year about uh, Drupal 8 and developing for it. Um, so watch for me at a conference near you. And uh, watch for a book with my name on it at some point in the near ish future after it's released <laughs> nice what about you Bo? you have anything you want to promote yeah i'd like to uh, give a shout out to my podcast that podcast and my co-host dave marshall uh we just actually launched uh, episode 20 today and we've been around i think tech would have been our one year anniversary so this is the the first episode of of year two so yeah cool. uh, if you can come check it out uh, let us know what you think excellent uh and matthew you got anything uh, yeah, uh, a couple of things. Um, first off, you know, I work on Zen Framework and uh, App Agility. One of the things that we've just changed is we've split all the components off into their own repositories with their own lifelines, which means that going forward, they're going to be versioned on their own and they're going to be much more granular. Uh, so start checking those out again if you've ignored them because they're part of a monolithic package. Uh, I think you're going to be surprised at what you start seeing in the future. Uh, Diectoros and Stratagility are two of those. Uh, so you can start to see what the future of Zen Framework looks like. Um, uh, just a quick thank you to Bo. Uh, Bo was incredibly uh, helpful and supportive during the entire lifeline, uh, lifetime of uh, PSR7. Uh, I couldn't have asked for a better sponsor. So. Nice. Yes. Well, cool. Well, our next episode is going to be PHP's major bus factor problem. And this was inspired by a lively open spaces talk at PHP Tech this past year. Um, we're going to have some really cool people coming on and, and talking about this little thing that, um, I don't know, it should be interesting. I've never had a PHP roundtable that's going to be quite like it. Um, so uh, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> is this Liz Smith's doing? Uh, she was, she's not in that one, but uh, oh. some other lively folks. Um, <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, if you have something you'd like to share about a particular topic that PHP nerds care about, um, you need to be on this panel. So just hit me up on Twitter if you're interested. My Twitter handle is Sammy K, or just ping PHP Roundtable. And finally, I'd just like to thank Larry, Matthew, and Bo for joining us for this discussion. And we'll see you guys in the uh, next episode.
Roundtable is recorded live using Google Hangouts on Air. If you'd like to get more information about the live broadcasts, visit phproundtable.com. While you're on the site, join the mailing list to get notified about the next live episode. And hey, maybe even join the conversation at the Roundtable. We'd love to hear what you have to say. The theme music is provided by Bensound at bensound.com. The PHP Roundtable logo was designed by Clint McManaman, and you can find him at mcmanaman.co. That's M-C-M-A-N-A-M-A-N.co. Thanks for listening. I'm Sammy K. Powers, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.